This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 18 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. That's Max. And he's John. And we're Commentary Trek Stars. Woohoo! <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, I'm sure everyone was uh, expecting us to talk about uh, the comedic romp dodgeball, a true underdog story this week. And if that's what you're looking for, you're going to be very disappointed because instead of doing that, we're going to talk about um, a couple people who passed away this week. So kind of a 180 there. We apologize for that. But we figured, you know, kind of had to do this, right? We can't dodge this ball. No, we can't. Very poignant. <laughs> as as we noted at the start of last week's episode, uh, we lost two uh, really big names in the Star Trek family this week. Uh, Maurice Hurley, who was the uh, co-executive producer and showrunner of seasons one and two of Star Trek The Next Generation, writer of 12 episodes and various other things, and Leonard Nimoy, who of course played... Commander Spock on Star Trek the original series and directed uh, a couple of the movies and we figured this week we could take a look at both of them uh, briefly just sort of of give an overview of their uh, careers both inside and outside of Star Trek and then after we're done with William Shatner we will do a full series on both Leonard Nimoy and Maurice Hurley. So let's start with Maurice Hurley. Uh, He was a producer from the very beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, technically, not the very beginning. You know, like like most uh, people who work on writing staffs on uh, television shows, he wasn't there for the pilot. Uh, But he came in with episode two of that series, which was The Naked Now, at least production-wise. And... He quickly ascended the ranks of the writing staff, I guess you could say, and by uh, coming of age, he was the co-executive producer of the show and the showrunner, taking over from Roddenberry, I believe. I'm not 100% positive on that. The early years of Next Generation are very weird in that way. But yeah, first uh, episode that he wrote was Hide and Q, which he actually didn't even put his name on. Um, but he went on to write uh, 12 episodes total of Next Generation, including the uh, season finale of season one, The Neutral Zone, which kind of set up the Borg, which was supposed to be how season two opened. But we didn't actually get to see the Borg until Q Who. Uh, in the middle of of season two, somewhere there. And that episode was also written by Maurice Hurley. So yes, he did create the Borg. And um, he worked on Next Generation through season two until he left 
after uh, writing Shades of Grey, which he himself admits is horrible. <laughs> um, he came back later on to write two episodes of Next Gen in later seasons. One was Galaxy's Child and the other was Power Play. So, uh, yeah, Maurice Hurley, really weird um, creator <laughs> when it comes to Star Trek, very polarizing in a lot of ways. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, Maurice Hurley's contribution to Next Generation? John? Uh, can you imagine Next Generation without the Borg? I, you know, in a nutshell. I, I, you know, is it possible, you know, he even had an idea that it would become... So, you know, it would become the con of the series of, you know, it, it's the penultimate villain. Like they even went back to it for a uh, Voyager and Enterprise. So I doubt that he realized the full implication of what he created, really. Um, I could be wrong about that. Maybe he knew he was just dropping a huge, great villain on the world. But, uh, yeah, can't imagine Next Gen without him. It certainly seems like he had designed it that way you know like i think there was a quote in um larry nemichek's book the, the next generation companion where uh hurley was talking about like comparing it to say like the ferengi who i think were the the villain that that roddenberry was sort of pushing as sort of the the big villain on the show and and hurley was like how can you have someone whose goal is to you know uh, um accumulate wealth be the big villain on a show like this is like if they're going to steal gold who cares they can make gold on their ship you know but the borg i mean that's like pure evil you know yeah and the fact that he was kind of like pushing it you know like you see the seeds planted in neutral zone and then that's how he wanted to open up season two i mean that's pretty cool i mean what, what do you think about that max well, I don't think that the I don't think the idea behind the Borg was that they were pure evil. I think the idea was that they are they are they are the 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 dark side of conformity and progress. They are mm -hmm. what you imagine we might be if we put aside all of our problems and squabbles and internal drama in place of forward momentum, expansion and growth and survival. The Borg are survivors. They're not individuals, which is why they're really, to a great extent, um, the closest thing to an opposite but a peer of the Federation and Starfleet in particular. So they're kind of, in, I think they were designed to be sort of the Lex Luthor to Star Trek Superman. They're the opposite, but mm. equally powerful. And, and not evil. Know, evil is sort of like a byproduct of the, uh, of the, of the behaviors. It's not supposed to be evil. Well, I, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I don't know well enough. But was there any intent at all to sort of? Um, I mean, you know, given the fact that Next Gen came up around the end of the '80s, was there any sort of uh, you know the dark side of of sort of the the socialist ideal? I mean, like was was there any sort of Cold War influence in the creation of the Borg? Would be well, I think the, I think that the anti sort of um, like like communistic point of view has always been present in Star Trek. I mean, I think from the original series, probably like the first like five or six episodes, you see an indication that that the the that Starfleet and the Federation in particular um, didn't put aside ambition and personal achievement. It just made it very clear that 
there's no excuse for personal achievement at the expense of others, and there is a price for uh, consumption without a conscience. And it's why, I mean, it's sort of a reference, sort of uh, vaguely and not mm -hmm. really specified, really super precisely. But it seems pretty obvious that Kirk is influenced by some um, communists and uh, hippies and um, radical thinkers of the, of the past. But they've moved on from the polarizing point of view. And Star Trek's future isn't really one of communism. It's actually more like a, mm -hmm. a, a an economy of abundance. They have everything. They do still have a finite amount of resources. But they have so many, nobody worries about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people criticize uh the use of the Borg in Star Trek, but and and certainly it may have been overused in future shows and stuff like that. Even in Next Generation it may have been overused uh to a point, but I think uh you can't really place any of that on Hurley. No. Certainly as as someone who well only used it once and was setting up something, kind he of, did kind uh, of <laughs> Well, what, in in what way? Like, if you count neutral zone? Or yeah, what? you count yeah. neutral zone. You got to count neutral zone. Yeah, okay. if, I mean, if that's supposed to be the setup, yeah. Then you know, I I, I think that uh, it, it it was really effective. You know, I mean, it's he he did a great job of setting up. You know, what would become Star Trek: Next Generation's finest moment? You could say with like best of both worlds and stuff like that. You could yeah. say that. And 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 that's that's pretty great. I can't say that. Okay. <laughs> now, now, certainly there were some missteps in seasons one and two. Uh, some of them were not Hurley's fault, uh, but some of them you, you definitely have to say were. Um, the big one being, uh, I think in most people's opinion, uh, the firing of Gates McFadden and, and the creation of Dr. Pulaski. There's a lot of people who don't like Dr. Pulaski. Um, and that's that's interesting, but like be, before that, yes. Yeah. But be, be, be before we get to that, what do you guys think about the fact that Doctor Crusher is not in season two, Max? It's stupid. It's an awkward transition. It was poorly handled. It was a silly idea, and the awkward way that Wesley references his mother not being on the ship is actually very old-school TV, and Next Gen was actually slightly out of step with that time. And it is strange and off-putting when it is referenced that Beverly Crusher is not on the ship anymore. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about that, John? Hated it then, hate it now. <laughs> I mean, you know, you spend a season getting used to the characters, and then they're like, oh, man, eh, never mind. And, you know, Dr. Crusher was actually one of my one of the characters I liked better in the first season. And, you know, to have her gone at the beginning of the second was like, wait, screw you. You know, like I felt a little, as a fan, I felt a little betrayed because I'd invested this time in getting to know the character and then just, you know, presto changeo, gone. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, I think that um, it, it was definitely a misstep. You know, I, I, I can understand, I guess, if that you have a writer there who's, having trouble writing for the character or who wants to do something else that they can't do with that character. But I think, you know, history has shown that uh, Next Generation is stronger with Crusher than without her. 
Um, but I think a lot of people tend to hate on Dr. Pulaski more than anything because they're missing Dr. Crusher. Yeah. Now, I mean, I personally like the character of Dr. Pulaski. I, she's not one of my favorite characters or anything like that, but I don't think that she's bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that she doesn't uh, gel as well with the rest of the crew as uh, Beverly did. But, but what do you guys think about uh, Dr. Pulaski? John? Uh, I think you hit the nail on the The chemistry wasn't there. That, you know, like it, the character itself isn't necessarily a bad character, but you, you know, what really, really made you miss Dr. Crusher was Pulaski never felt like she fit in. She felt like just a, you know, a square peg with a round hole to, you know, to use the old tired phrase. But I mean, you know, seriously, it, it was very much a feeling, you know, she just, it didn't feel right. Just there wasn't the chemistry. What do you think, Max? I'm not I'm not sure exactly how old I was, but I was still in the single digits of age when this occurred. Youngin. Yeah. And um even at that young age, I remember thinking she is exactly like bones. She is just a female bones. Why are they doing this? I thought we were past this. Mm-hmm. And um, I got older, and I kind of forgot about the animosity that I once held. And when I was rewatching the show um, later on, when it started coming out on DVD, I was like, "Oh wow, yeah, she really is a lot like Bones." I was right about that. <laughs> and then when I rewatched it a couple more times, every time I get to I get to her introduction, it's like she hates the transporter. Come on. Oh, man. Oh, and she doesn't get data. Oh, she's got such a problem with data, but not like racist, kind of, a little bit. Oh, God, she's, she's female bones. Uh, so I, I found her frustrating, and I still find her frustrating. And I, and I don't think there was sufficient effort made to differentiate her from um, uh, bones with boobs. Um, so uh, I, I, I have I have a problem with the character on that end, and and the 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 awkwardness of the transition from one doctor to another doctor was very poorly handled, and her her character I don't think ever quite came together in a way that wasn't she doesn't quite get data, and otherwise is exactly like Bones, literally weirdly exactly like Bones, down to like the one strange vague reference to a weird love affair that isn't brought up again. It's very strange. I don't like it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Now, there are a lot of problems with seasons one and two, like we've been saying, but, you know, as, as I said before, you can't put them all on Hurley by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, that first season of Next Gen had so much trouble just sort of getting its its footing. There was so much turnover in terms of the writing staff and everything like that. And, and Roddenberry, I think, figuring out exactly what it was he wanted to do with it. And uh, if anything, I would say Hurley brought stability to the show in season one. And when it comes to season two, I think a lot of the problems there came from the fact that they were in the middle of a writer's strike, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, a couple of the episodes were rewrites of phase two scripts, 
you know, the the budgets were being slashed to the point that he had to do a clip show at the end. It it was just it, it was nothing but trouble. And I think that, you know, um that's that's a lot of that blame for is placed on Hurley unfairly. I don't know who's I mean, placing that blame. I haven't heard a lot of blame going around specifically pointing at Hurley. I've heard a lot of people blaming a lot of people for season two. I think it's unfair to blame one person. I think you have to blame all of them. They all deserve a hundred percent of the blame. That's fair. It's I mean, it is true. I mean, whether or not specific people are or whatever, I mean, I've heard that Maurice Hurley would refuse to discuss Star Trek in interviews and, and stuff like that just because he had such a hard time um, on the show and, and uh, was given so much grief by so many people. So w- and, was it like internal production people? or like uh, To speak to Max's point, I've never heard anybody like call out Hurley and be like, oh, he's the reason it sucked. But like, w- was it just they turned on him internally and that's why he never wanted to talk about it? I imagine it was both. I mean, I think certainly there are people who, like, if, if there's a TV show or a movie or something which you don't like, and you're going to say, like, who who's responsible for that? Oh. Richard Marquand. <laughs> Richard Marquand. Well, tongue. he's obviously the problem with Return of the Jedi, you yeah, know? I'm going to come I mean, through it, this connection. Or... <laughs> I'm going to mess you guys up. No, no. I, hey, I, I, I love Return of the Jedi, and, and I think Richard Marquand's very good. But um, No, but and, it's a thing I've heard people say. Sure. Yeah. But, like, you know, you look at it on the surface. If you're just looking at, let's say, the credits, it's like, okay, Star Trek The Next Generation all of a sudden got a lot better in Season 3. Well, what happened in Season 3? Maurice Hurley left, and uh, Michael Piller came on. Well, obviously, Michael Piller, then, is the savior of Star Trek, and Maurice Hurley is the guy who almost destroyed it, you know? And I think that that's silly. Oh, I, mean, I, you can't, I yeah, agree. Yeah, but people do, like, a, an easy narrative. I think I think it is fair to say that Michael Piller might be the savior, but blaming Maurice Hurley for seasons one and two is ridiculous. Yeah, and and you know I, I don't know I know that there was a lot of uh, sort of tension going on behind the scenes with Hurley and the writing staff and Roddenberry and the cast and everything like that. So I don't think he was the most popular person behind the scenes in Star Trek. But, you know, I mean, hey, for, from what I've heard, he is the guy who hired Michael Piller. He was friends uh-huh. with Piller, and he hired him. And, and, you know, Piller gave him work after he left because he saw his talent. So, um, Word. Yeah. Now, looking at some of the things that Hurley has done outside of Trek... Uh, he is primarily a television writer, and he was a writing producer on five shows total. Um, before Next Generation, he did The Equalizer, um, which you're a fan of, John. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? I loved watching that show. That was the greatest thing as a kid. It was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like old Batman walking around. It's great. Loved it. Yeah. I, I Max, did you see it? Yeah. I, I remember the Equalizer. I wasn't. I wasn't really a big fan of the Equalizer, but it was. Um, it was. It was a little bit outside of my age range. And when I grew up old, old enough to um, get into a you know a darker crime show, um, it it didn't really hold up against the 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 pillars of that genre. So it didn't quite shine to me. Product of its time. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no. It's yeah. no Miami Vice. Yeah, that's true. 
Snow Hill Street Blues. So it's like, I don't know, it's kind of lost. It's sort of in that middle ground, and I, and I missed it. I was a simple child with simple tastes. <laughs> yeah. I liked Moonlighting, bro. Hey. Moonlighting! The f- first season of Moonlighting. So, no. <laughs> now, I, I uh, never saw the the Equalizer television show, but I did see the movie that came out, uh, Antoine Fuqua, and uh, that, that was pretty great, I have to say. Um, pretty sure that the movie is nothing like the TV show. Yeah, that's what I've heard. But he makes things equal. Yeah. Um, like, like a mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> he solves problems with an abacus. <laughs> the, the next show that he produced was Next Generation, and then after Next Gen, he created his own show called Point Man, um, which was another sort of like crime detective show. Um, and after that, he went on to do um, Baywatch Nights, which I believe he was the showrunner of. In season two, I believe, which is, isn't that the season where they got all alien? I think stuff? we should blow by have, Baywatch Nights. I have so little memory of that show. Okay, fine. Um, well, when Baywatch Nights was canceled... Uh, they apparently liked Hurley enough to keep him on the writing staff of Baywatch Prime. So uh, <laughs> that was the last show that he produced. But he wrote for uh, a number of other television shows, including Miami Vice. There you go, Max. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, which oh. I, I remember being on yeah. uh, since it was always on like right after Next Generation. Uh, he wrote a couple episodes of Diagnosis Murder. Uh, with wasn't that the Dick Van Dyke show? Yeah, that was Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, and then he wrote uh, a number of episodes of La Femme Nikita, which was the one produced by the uh, Twenty Four guys, and um, he wrote an episode of Twenty Four season one and Twenty Four season two, which I mean that stuff is amazing. All of that stuff is just yeah. the best, right, Max? Well, no, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, fine. Let's go ahead. And say, yeah. <laughs> Path of least resistance, Max. Um, path of blowing by it. <laughs> uh, now he also wrote a few movies, a few TV movies, and a few theatrical releases. And uh, the the movies that he wrote, which uh, we we are going to look at when we do cover Hurley. Well, the first one we can't because it's not really available anywhere. That's Firebird, twenty fifteen A.D. Unless people uh, want to contribute like $700 to us to so buy a VHS. Can, yeah, VHS tape. And yeah. we're going to need a, a VHS player as well. So <laughs> Probably substantially cheaper than the tape. Probably. Uh, yeah. I At kinda... some point, we will have to revisit The Legend Continues because there is a significant hilarious overlap where Shatner directed an episode. So Yes. Um, I, I kind of I wish uh, Firebird 2015 AD was available, especially since we are now in the year 2015 AD. But... Yeah. Watch out for firebirds, bro. <laughs> yep, they're all over the place. <laughs> uh, he also wrote a movie called The Proposal, which is available on Netflix, uh, which we're going to take a look at. And the last movie that he wrote was Groom Lake, which was directed by and starring the one and only William Shatner. And yeah. we're definitely going to take a look at that, too. Yes, we are. Okay. So I guess it's time to move on to Leonard Nimoy. Okay. Yeah. Um, This was obviously very sad news as well. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's like Nightcrawler. It's it's very um, strange how much, 
I was sort of affected by the death of a guy who was, you know, old and lived a, a full life and who I never met once in my life. But, you know, whatever. I guess that happens, right? Um, he obviously played Commander Spock on Star Trek, uh, the original series and the animated series and the first six movies and the last two movies and an episode of Next Gen, or two episodes of Next Gen. And he directed uh, <laughs> Star Trek's three and four. Now, he had a, a lot of accomplishments as an actor. Uh, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for all three seasons of the original series. And he was also nominated for a television movie in 1982 called uh, A Woman Called Golda. Um, the other shows which he was featured in were Mission Impossible, where he came in in season four right after um, the original series ended. The very next year, he became a regular on, on Mission Impossible. He was also the host of two shows about weird, crazy stuff that may or may not be real, um, In Search Of, and Ancient Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Aliens did it. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. <laughs> and the other time? <laughs> alien. <it's> cover-up. <laughs> yes, alien cover-up. By aliens to cover up <laughs> something happened because of angels. And when we cover Nimoy, uh, after we're done with Shatner, uh, we're going to be looking at those three shows. Um, but for this week... Uh, what what do you guys uh, think about his contribution to Star Trek? Because it's one of those weird things where it's not just like any other actor where it's like, oh, yeah, he was that character and we loved that character and he was great in that role. Like, to me, the thing that I, I keep on saying is I really felt like Nimoy was much more than that. He brought a lot more to Star Trek than just acting as this character he really was the face of the show and i think that he really had a lot to do with what the show was um because he was uh um demanding of the the rest of the the creative team to you know push forward in a certain direction and maintain a, a high level of quality um but john i mean what do you what do you think about this uh you know I, I have been thinking about it, you know, to, to speak to what you you said at, at first, where it's like, oh, this is a, a, you know, a guy who had a long career, never met him in person, but in a large way, I felt like I knew uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, not just because of the, uh, the interviews, but I really think that his portrayal of Spock, he had so much invested in it, and he gives the real... Uh, the real grounding to the rest of the characters, like the 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 that what's that over the the word that everybody overuses gravitas or you know like whatever like he really brought a sincerity to the role that you know gave the rest of it this this respectability this seriousness uh, without being morose and and. He just he he what the the whole reason they br brought him back in two thousand nine is because he is that foundation he you know everything else stood on his his performance in a way and this is a guy who even though we never met him 
he's you know he's been in my living room very frequently for the entirety of my life you know the voice mm-hmm. the face the movements everything about him was just couldn't be imitated and you know I, like it's one of those things that does leave you sort of struggling of if I never met this guy, why is it affecting me in this way? And I, I really think it's just because we did know him and his interactions with Shatner. When you, when you watch the two of them together and you see that sort of easy chemistry that they had, you suddenly understand that no matter how good Shatner was going to be or anybody else was going to be, Nimoy made them that much better. Yeah. What about you, Max? What do you think about Nemo? Um, I'm I I'm I don't really think that I'm um, able to uh, contextualize the entirety of the reaction because I mean to a great extent, um, uh, Nemo has been sort of an abstraction for for me for a big chunk of time. Um, basically, every time he showed up in something, it was like, oh, I thought that he like just became one with the universe and stopped being a human a long time ago because like he kind of did transcend personhood to me like when I was a child and um so the like there was something sort of odd about the idea that he like actually died because it seems impossible to me uh and I think that that's partly because uh, like I mean I like I read his his Spock centric books when I was pretty young, and that's a big deal. Like like those are weird things. Like it's a weird thing to sort of um, explore a person who's exploring their identity through a fictional character and how they sort of transcend the idea that they are either one thing or not a one thing. It's um, so uh, to a great extent, I don't. I don't really know how to process the idea that he's gone. And I think to a great extent it's because um I I I mean like I I, I already dealt with his death. Like to a great extent back, in... back when I saw the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean like right. I like I already sort of like processed that loss and you know and then he came back and I was like, "Oh, well that's not as good." Yeah, no, I mean, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, uh, I was thinking, like, it's going to be a while before I can watch Wrath of Khan, you know, just because that's, I don't know, there's just something about that. And the thing that I kept on thinking is, like, you know, here you've got, you know, like, uh, his funeral and everything like that, and all these people who are, like, honoring him in in this fictional world or whatever and now all those same people are like honoring him in the real world and it's like this is just so bizarre to like see this you know kind of like play out in real life when we saw it play out in the 23rd century you know back in 1982 yeah simon pegg <clears throat> bagpipes exactly and and you know it's it's very uh strange too also to think of like star trek 3 now because uh now more than ever it really does kind of feel like just a a farce in a sense you know 
It's like, oh yeah, well we hated the fact that he was gone, so we're just going to bring him back to life. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. And um, I think it's, just... it's time for people to start hating Star Trek Three now. <laughs> Which you can't really do, especially since that was like no, one of his. No, it's totally fine to hate Star Trek Three. It is possible. Okay. I will, I'll <laughs> ma- I will uh, back Max up on this one. It is entirely possible. yo yo <laughs> respect, John. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I, I can't I can't hate on Star Trek three. But then again, like when I wanted to sort of like uh pay tribute to him by by watching uh some of his greatest work, um the thing that I naturally sort of went to was uh his directorial work because that's just kinda the way I think about things. I kinda think of stuff that people do as directors as being more significant than their work as actors, which is probably unfair. But that's just what I do. And so I'm like, well, there's Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. And I thought about it for all of about two seconds. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to watch Star Trek 4. Um, yeah. That sounds like yeah. the way to go. Um, well, but, I mean, hey, what do you guys think about his work as a director in, in uh, Star Trek? Because that was, like, the next step. And, like, I can see that now. Like, if someone were to be like, uh, yeah, well, okay, so they're going to be making more, let's say, next gen we're going to make next gen movies and you know Patrick Stewart is going to direct it even though he's directed like two things in the past you know like what do you guys think about that i'd be like that's that's no that's not going to work but it worked for the most part he's a good director i mean what do you guys think yeah he is a good director and i you know i think that while i do not love star trek 3 uh with star trek 4 I think what's very significant about that, you know, as much as I just went on about like he gave this, you know, seriousness and gravity to everything, Star Trek Four is the one because I I remember his, one of his behind the scenes interviews about it, where he was talking about the fact that they had the crew had gone through all of this stuff in the first three movies, and he wanted to do something where they had the chance to be happy, you know, and have have fun with it. And appreciate the, these characters that that they had, you know, grown and nurtured. And he really gets one hell of a performance out of everybody in that movie. And on top of that, manages to put in a completely, uh, you know, eco-friendly message. You know, the he used the House of Cards analogy. You know, you can keep you can take away cards, and the House of Cards will stand. But then you remove one keystone, and everything's going to fall apart. And he communicated that so fluidly. I think that he, he, he really, as a director, found a way, knew how to find a way to communicate a message without making anybody feel like they were being preached to. Uh, because I, you know, I read another thing uh, about his work on Three Men and a Baby, where it's a very um, new parent, pro-feminist message but it's packaged in such a way that nobody got their hackles up. Nobody felt that they were getting a lesson about the world in it. It was just a message about, hey, you know what? With Star Trek Four, look, you know, we need to take care of the environment. But people had a good time going along, and so at the end they walk out with a message, but they don't you know, they, they walk out with a spring in their step and I'm like, hey, you know what? Eh, that was fun and yeah. Right, we do need to respect the environment. 
Yeah, it's kind of a strange thing because uh, Star Trek Four is very much sort of the the least formulaic of all of the Star Trek movies, and yet it totally gets what Star Trek is. And it is also definitely the most Nimoy of them all. You yeah. know, he helped co-write the story. I really feel like he was sort of one of the driving forces behind that eco-friendly message and everything like that. And he understands what Star Trek is at its core, and he was able to make a very Star Trek movie, even though it was set in San Francisco in 1986, mm-hmm. and there were no you know, bad guys or anything like that. He totally got what it was that Star Trek at its core was really about. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, speaks a lot to him as a person and him as a contributor to the franchise. What do you think about uh, his his direction, Max? Well, with Star Trek Four, I think that there's um, there's a lot of positive stuff to say. It's a uh, there's a lot about it that is legitimately brilliant, and um, none of it is you know the basic story, which is completely nonsensical gibberish. Um, but uh, the 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 idea that they are in present day directly facing the sort of um, the reality that Star Trek is directly up against that it's a show being made now about the distant future. I mean, uh, of course, the best place to challenge that reality is right here, right now. And they challenge it in a way that does make the present seem like it, it needs to change. And that is a very, uh, a very clever thing that Star Trek has done a few times. And it rarely gets as pointed as it does in Star Trek Four, which I think is the main saving grace of that movie, and why, despite really disliking all of the nonsense in it, uh, it still holds up. Because it does directly challenge its audience in a way that the original series did, and the way Wrath of Khan did, and the way the motion picture tried to. Um, and... And that's what Star Trek is. Star Trek is a show and a, a series that says to its audience, you're not good enough, you should be better. And 4 does that. And I think that's pretty awesome. It doesn't do that anymore. But the point is that that's what they did. Yes. All right. Well, let's let's take a look at just uh, some of the, the, the work that Nimoy has done outside of Star Trek. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is just kind of read off his uh, directorial efforts. And then I've got a big, long list of, of things which he did uh, acting-wise. And I figure I could just barrel down the list. And whenever we get to something that someone wants to comment on, we can stop and comment on it. But as far as directing is concerned, he started off by doing a couple of TV things. He directed an episode of Night Gallery. He directed a TV movie called Vincent, which I think he also starred in about Vincent Van Gogh. I believe that started uh, as a as a play um, that he starred in, if I'm not mistaken. He did an episode of T.J. Hooker, and then after um, Star Trek's three and four, he started making um, theatrical movies, Three Men and a Baby, huge. At the time, it yeah. was the highest-grossing film of 1987, which is insane. Yeah, it was. It was a big hit and gave birth to that whole uh, uh, "ghost in the window" myth. Okay. That totally has a ghost. Uh, definitely time. happened. Yeah. He, he also directed "The Good Mother," "Funny About Love," and "Holy Matrimony." Three Men and a actor, Baby holds up, by the way. Just in case you don't know that, totally holds up today. You know, that was actually one of the first times where I watched a movie because of the director. 
I was really big into Star Trek, and it was July 4th, I think, 96. I remember it was while the whole OJ thing was happening. I was over at my aunt's house, my aunt who introduced me to Star Trek. And she had she had a whole ton of movies, and we were sitting around. I was at her house for the day, and she's like, what do you want to watch? And I'm like, out of all these movies, which, I mean, God, she had all the James Bond movies. She had all the Die Hard. I mean, she had a ton of movies, and the one that I picked was Three Men and a Baby because I'm like, well, Leonard Nimoy directed it. And you can't discount that Steve Gutenberg's in it. That's, that's a, true. That's a big factor too. Yeah. <laughs> and <The> Goot. <laughs> and and I actually do like uh, Three Men and a Baby. So, uh, but now let's take a look at uh, what Nimoy has been in. I'm just going to go down this list and stop me if you if you want to. If there's something where you're like, hey. Uh, now, the one that everyone always talks about for some reason, I think probably because of the name more than anything else, Zombies of the Stratosphere. Um, but he also was in uh, episodes of Dragnet, Bonanza, Rawhide, The Twilight Zone. Oh, wait a um, minute. With with Bonanza, was it Bonanza? There was some Western where uh, he and DeForest Kelly had worked on together as actors and uh, DeForest Kelly had played like a doctor and let him die on the on the operating table or something like that. I, I, I forget which show it was, but I remember him relaying that story. One of those Western shows that happened on there. I swear to you, he he was Could on have been a, Rawhide. I don't remember a lot of people dying on Bonanza. <laughs> no, are you I kidding? Mean, By the truckload. He was really? In... I don't remember a lot of people dying on Bonanza. <laughs> oh no, no, I, no! I no, watched just... Rawhide though. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. He, he was in okay. he was in all those. He was in Wagon Train and all that stuff. It could have been any of those. And of course, DeForest yeah. Kelly got his start on those things. Um, Untouchables, Perry Mason, The Lieutenant, which we actually watched for the second episode of this uh, show, uh, yeah. where he basically plays like a Michael Bay type of uh, director. And that performance is what convinced Roddenberry that Nimoy would be good for the role of Spock. Uh, he was in uh, The Outer Limits, Man from Uncle, Combat, Get Smart, Gunsmoke, Night yeah. Gallery, uh, the remake of The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I know oh, he was great love in, that. Him in that. He was yeah. great in that, yeah. See, that, I've never seen that one. I've only that, seen the that, that one's a lot of, the, the 1970s one is the first version I saw. That scared the hell out of me. Yeah. 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 They're both good. I have to check it out. He was in T.J. Hooker, um, and now for me, this is the big one here. He was the voice of uh, Galvatron in the Transformers yes, movie. Yes, he was, which I saw yeah. in the movie theater, and when I saw Leonard Nimoy's name in the credits, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's awesome. Yeah. I didn't get to see it in the movie theater because my mom dropped the ball in taking me, but 10, 15, <laughs> 15 20 years later, Max and I... We're able to go to a midnight screening at the music box here in Chicago, so all is right. Hold on, but we had seen it before then. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. We did see it in theaters. You can't, re- you can't replace that big screen feeling of Unicron. Yeah. That being said, I, I did love the fact that um, the, the, the music box in Chicago, which is like the most historic theater still standing in Chicago, is, is the venue in which I saw both. Citizen Kane and the Transformers, the movie on the big screen. That that's makes me very that's happy. the full spectrum of Wells's career, at least. Yep, for sure. 
No legendary criminals were shot there, though. <laughs> no, no, not yet. Not at that one. Not yet. <laughs> he was in not a, yet. Not yet. Not yet. Let's get OJ down there. See what happens. <laughs> he he was also um, himself in a couple episodes of The Simpsons, and he was he yeah. was brilliant in his appearances in The Simpsons. Yeah, he oh, was yeah. he yeah. was in what's considered to be the best episode of The Simpsons, right? Marge nope. versus the monorail. Oh, Mar- Oh, no. his appearance in the monorail was great. Uh, the one, the X Files one, where he's doing mm-hmm. a parody of In I Search of. That. I saw where, that. <laughs> that. That. But God, I still quote the monorail one. His appearance on the monorail one. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, my work here is done. You didn't do anything. <laughs> didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I. Uh... He basically plays Spock there. Let's be honest. <laughs> he plays Spock, named Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> I, I just now realized, speaking of In Search Of, that um, NERD's uh, debut album is named after In Search Of. It's In Search Of. But, you know, I mean, he's obviously a big fan of Nimoy. He, you know, Pharrell, he even interviewed Nimoy uh, just like a year or so ago. His, you know, kind of symbol is the is the um, Vulcan salute and everything like that. And I, I just put that together just this week that... In Search Of by N.E.R.D. is named after Leonard Nimoy's TV show, In Search Of. So y'all and by the way, listen. if you haven't heard In Search Of by N.E.R.D., check it out. One of the best albums I've ever heard. It's amazing. It's pretty anyway. great. Wow. N.E.R.D. alert. <laughs> um, he was also um, a voice in Atlantis, The Lost Empire. He was nominated for an Annie for that. And then, just to kind of bring it full circle, he was uh, the voice of the bad guy, Sentinel Prime, in Transformers Dark of the Moon, which I thought was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was a nice nod. Even though I never saw the movie, I knew he was in it. So that was It's actually nice. a, a good movie. I'd, I I'd refuse the, to believe that. It's the best of all the, the uh, live-action Transformers movies. Is it, it's the third one? Yes. Okay, and they they destroy Chicago, which is pretty awesome. Oh, so. that's a plus. And and they also weren't suffering through a writer's strike, which we all know is the perfect excuse for things being bad. <laughs> that there is true. Go. And they weren't in the third <laughs> one, so everything got redeemed there. All right. Um, threes. Everything turns around in three. That's just how it goes. He Except he for Star Wars. He appeared in the Big Bang Theory, and then the last uh, big role that he had. Uh, last recurring role on a television show was on Fringe. Oh yeah, uh, which yeah, yeah. No, I, he was, I never. He was good I in never, that. You, you, I never saw, saw, you never saw him on Fringe. I saw I saw the last episode of season one, and I was like, "Oh my god, I need to watch the rest of this." And I still haven't watched the rest of it. But uh, I totally need to watch the rest of it. It's been nine years since that show ended. Look, I'm pretty here, sure. My math isn't great. I'm not a Vulcan. But the point is that you've had plenty of time to watch it. The, the thing about it is, like, I started watching it on my own. And I'm like, you know, I asked my wife, like, do you want to see this? She said, no, I have no interest. And I watched it all through season one. And then I got to the end. And there's Leonard Nimoy. And I'm like, you have to watch this show now because my wife loves Leonard Nimoy more than anyone else on the planet, myself included. I mean, she loves him more than she loves me, is what I'm saying. Um, 
So I'm like, you have to watch season one so that we can then watch season two together because I know that I'm not allowed to watch this without you since Leonard Nimoy's on it. And it's just, you know, trying to get the two of us to re-watch season one before going on to season two has been difficult. But You could pick up season two without really, you know, suffering. Yeah. You could just jump right that into does- it. It d- d- doesn't work like that. You, you, you know that doesn't work like that. Yeah, I know that doesn't work. It was worth a shot. <laughs> you can skip like half of Lost and just, just jump right in at the end. It's fine. Okay. And I'm not joking about that. <laughs> you're wrong, but you're not joking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, the last uh, performance of his career was in Star Trek Into Darkness, which, you know, as much as I loved seeing him in that movie, and I'm one of the people who did love that appearance it kind of saddens me now that that was it because to me the sort of sign-off that he had and the passing of the torch that he had in Star Trek 09 was so perfect, you know, and there's that scene where he's like overlooking everything and he's like, you know, thrusters on full, you know, whatever, full speed ahead, whatever he said there, it was just so perfect. And to kind of have this sort of So perfect, whatever it was. (laughs) <laughs> it, I, it, look, you know, I, I don't know the exact wording, but he said, you know, something like, you know, warp speed. Whatever he said, it doesn't Heat matter. Heat shields to maximum. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, One now damn there's just this, <laughs> and now there's just this little extra thing hanging off of the end of it where he's just like, ah, oh, yeah, hey, how's it going, dudes? And that's kind of disappointing. But uh, it was still great to see him one last time, regardless. <laughs> Eh, it, it, you know, it, I I think you hit on something though, where it's such a throwaway scene that yeah. it, like that sign off at the end of the two thousand nine movie really was great, you know, because yeah. it it was it was him having fun one last time, and it was his ride off into the sunset, and that was really cool, and it does feel a little despoiled by the into darkness appearance. Yeah. All right. Well, do you guys have any final thoughts on, uh, well, let's start with final thoughts on Maurice Hurley. Uh, Max? Um, it's always a bummer when these things happen. Uh, um, I, I, I try not to obsess about, um, these things. Um, luckily he, uh, you know, had a really long life and he didn't die in some sad, terrible, tragic way that upsets me. Okay. What What about you, John? Any final thoughts on Maurice Hurley? No. You know, I one of those names that not a lot of people are going to know, except for fans who pay a lot of attention, but uh, definitely had a hand in shaping Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you don't really think about him too much, like you're saying, because... Uh, you don't really think about season one and two too much, but then when you go back and you look at what it was that he actually did, it's like, wow, you know, w- the parts of Star Trek that we love would not exist if he hadn't sort of built the the groundwork there. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, you got to thank him for that. Now, what about uh, Leonard Nimoy? John, any final thoughts? Uh, more than can be contained in a simple wrap-up. And, you know, I I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head earlier. It's going to take a long time for it to seem like Leonard Nimoy is no longer around. Um, yeah, you know, like it, it's, it's weird. I refrained from watching um, any of the movies after he died because it's 
it just I just don't know how I want to personally memorialize him yet. Yeah. And Max? Um, I kind of feel the opposite. Um, I I basically watched Wrath of Khan um, within an hour and a half of finding out that Leonard Nimoy died. Yeah. Uh, and and it's because it is it is actually so good that uh, if that was the last thing that Star Trek ever did, I think that would be okay. And I think that it's actually an amazing moment where everything was as good as maybe things should be, but never are. And it's also it's also the end of a character and a thing that um, that is really about how, like, you know, uh, death is just a part of life. And, and that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. And that, I think, is why I think that the movie to watch uh, is Star Trek II. It's the movie where Spock dies. Because it's not really about just death. It's about the entire experience. And if you, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're obsessed with that particular aspect of it, yeah, that would be hard to deal with. But uh, I think that Leonard Nimoy would would argue that uh, that's the message that you want to go out with. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, for me, uh, I don't know. I keep on thinking about um, his last convention appearance was here in Chicago, and uh, I was lucky enough to go to it. And unlike uh, most convention appearances, it wasn't him answering a lot of questions. It wasn't him making a lot of jokes or anything like that. He just got up there and basically read a speech and basically told his life story and uh, basically just said goodbye. And it was really cool because unlike, uh, you know, like a Shatner appearance, which I love because that guy is just hilarious you know, he's basically doing stand-up comedy. It's like, this is someone who's, like, speaking from the heart, and what you see in him telling his life story is that uh, all of those ideals and everything like that, which are present in Star Trek, are also present in Leonard Nimoy. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, he's so good and so important to uh, the franchise. And yeah, he, he definitely will be missed. It's kind of strange to think that there will be Star Trek without him. But uh, uh, it's strange for Roddenberry too. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah. See, with that, it's it's completely different for me because I was not a Star Trek fan until after Roddenberry had passed away. So hmm. I've never known Star Trek without Roddenberry. Really, with Roddenberry. Well, it's- I think I think that these things happen all the time. It's it's something that happens with um, like every every generation has like a, a band that that ends because somebody dies, and every generation yeah. has a uh, a filmmaker that dies, screwing up a franchise. Uh, everything everything seems to have this. I mean, every uh, there's, there's a point in the lifespan of a thing when it looks like it's over, and sometimes it is. I mean, I remember when Kurt Cobain killed himself and. My friends were like, so that's it. And it should be it. And when Roddenberry died, my friends and I were like, is that it? I kind of don't want it to be it. And this is another one of those things where it's like, is this it? This can't be it. Because uh, if this is it, then this is way past it. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I, I think that this is just one of those places where we have to remember that uh, it, it, it'll either survive or not, and maybe it doesn't matter. The important thing isn't Star Trek. Yeah. Mm. So let's talk about something else. Okay. Let's talk about Richard Marquand. <laughs> <laughs> no, but next week we'll talk about uh, Dodgeball, you know? Because I mean, hey, that's it's it's good. It's good to 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 add a little levity to these things. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, anyway, yes. After after we are done with with Shatner, we, we are going to do a series on on Leonard Nimoy, and we're going to look at his other television um, starring roles. Uh, it, in Mission Impossible, and then also um, the two shows that he hosted, In Search of and Ancient Mysteries. And then after we're done with Nimoy, we will move on to Maurice Hurley, because he definitely deserves a series of his own as well, where we're going to look at uh, the movies that he wrote that we have access to, which are The Proposal and Groom Lake. So so that's, that's what's coming up next. And, um, yeah, but first, Shatner. Um, but, yeah... Um, you know, it's been really good, I think, talking about Maurice Hurley and uh, Leonard Nimoy. Not exactly fun, but uh, that's not all that we've been talking about here on Trek FM. Actually, it probably is all that we've been talking about here on Trek FM. I'm not 100% positive on that. This uh, happens from time to time. <laughs> yeah. but, but here is a, a look at uh, what other people are talking about on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. This episode isn't very good, but... <laughs> Are we just going to pin all of our <laughs> choices? You pretty much have to. But the thing about this episode, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think, is it's a crazy idea. Earl Grey. Picard, can you construct a, a rudimentary lathe? Go for its weak spot. It's an energy being. It doesn't have a vulnerable spot. <laughs> Get off the line, the forge. The orb. Or we could just blame it on Janeway somehow, you know, that she it's scared fault, the yeah. Borg into the Gamma Quadrant because they were tired of dealing with her in the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. To the journey! Because this is the dangers, by the way, kids of having uh, babies in the 24th century because if Kathy's first word was coffee and she was standing next to the replicator the next thing you know you have a hyped up two-year-old the ready room well it's kind of like you know you've got your lucky shirt when you're watching a football game and your team won when you were wearing it so now you have to wear it every time that's also the Enterprise insignia that's the insignia of the only ship whose crew didn't die yeah so Just wear course. it on the right color shirt. That's all. That's right. Commentary, Trek stars. And then he turns to her and he says, who, who is that man that I was just hugging? And she says, that was William Shatner. And he's like, who? Literary Treks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really a, a fan of a lot of, you know, different kinds of you know, naval fiction. Uh, you know, I, I, C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower, those novels. So um, good. Yeah, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, the, the Master and Commander books. Uh, you know, these are all things which sort of put me into the right mindset. The 602 Club. So when we come kind of to the story here, and especially off of doing literary treks where we talk about Michael Pillar's book Fade In, kind of got behind the scenes of, of insurrection and really seeing how the, that story changed 
to me, it really just exemplified the importance of story in a movie. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows. You can find them on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Phone uh, uh, podcast Thing. directory, uh, Zoom. Zoom. Did I just make that up? Zoom. I'm not sure. Zoom is you, really. <laughs> I can't even remember. But you can find them all those places, and you can also find them on the website, SoundCloud, and all that good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Just go to Trek.fm and uh, and check it out. Uh, before we go, we'd like you to uh, please support our sponsor, uh, which is Audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from uh, and new titles coming each week. Uh, titles like Spock's World. No, wait. No, that one's not on there. But there are plenty of uh, Leonard Nimoy um, appearances and everything like that and Spock books on Audible, including I Am Spock, uh, which Leonard Nimoy wrote and narrated himself, uh, best known to the world as the actor who created the legendary Mr. Spock in the cult television series that launched the Star Trek phenomenon. Leonard Nimoy has written the definitive Star Trek memoir. In this long-awaited autobiography, Nimoy opens up to his fans in ways the Vulcan never could. Having played the pivotal pivotal role of Mr. Spock in the original series in six motion pictures, or eight, and uh, in a special two-part episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as having directed two of the movies, Nimoy is well-suited to tell the true story behind what was seen by the public. He provides an intelligent and insightful book about the creative process and the actor's craft and gives his own unique insider's view of the creation of both the character, Mr. Spock, and the Star Trek phenomenon. And you can get this book for free since you listen to commentary Trek stars. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary Trek stars and the network. All right, I guess that's about it. Um, it was really good to talk about Maurice Hurley and, and Leonard Nimoy. Uh, John. That yeah, was so good. It was so good. It was, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> John, where can people find you on the internet? Castle Junkie, K E S S E L J U N K I E, Twitter, other places. And also uh, co hosting podcast called Words with Nerds with my buddy Craig. Yeah. And NERDs. Yeah, Words there with Nerds. <laughs> Right on. Oh, perfect. Uh, Max, you're still uh, not on Twitter, technically? Yeah, I'm, I'm still on, not on Twitter publicly. All I'm right. on Twitter, but I don't do anything there except post random, b- bizarre, poetic nonsense that only I can see because I do not friend anybody on Twitter. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you, should, uh, you, should, you should open up to the nah, world. We'll see. All right. <laughs> Well, I'm on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and I'm also on Trek FM uh, doing Standard Orbit with Drew, where we talk about the original series. And I'm also on CommentaryTrackStars.com, along with Max and our friend Brandon, where we do Commentary Trackstars off-topic and uh, talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah, when people who weren't involved with Star Trek died. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. 
for for this week we will return to both Maurice Hurley and Leonard Nimoy in the future but first next week we will finally discuss William Shatner's performance as himself in Dodgeball a true underdog story.